Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff sitting in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. Robert... Hutton is with me as my wingman and sidekick this time. Another uh, a treat for you to be here, Robert. I appreciate you taking the time to be here with Filling us. Filling in for Tom. I think that's great, and Tom appreciates it. And uh, we have a, another great guest here uh, with us. This is Matthew Bunsen. Uh, Matthew is the faculty chair for uh, the Catholic Distance University. Uh, he's also a senior correspondent for our Sunday visitor and also author, speaker, teacher, evangelist, um, historian, historian, a little bit of everything, all yeah. those different things, and he's he's wearing a tuxedo. He's probably the best dressed that, that's true. guest we've ever had. Yes, here that's at right. The Catholic Cafe. So we're we showing you respect. That. Exactly. I, think I that's always awesome. wear a tuxedo. <laughs> of course, one of those, you do. One of those, uh, you're so you're so suave. I think that's beautiful. Be slightly overdressed for every occasion. You'll never be underdressed in exactly. that situation. That's very good. All right. So that said, you know. Um, t- Church history is an interesting, that's something that you, you kind of specialize in. I do. You know, and a lot of people might think that church history is something that, uh, well, that's in the past. Why are you digging up the past? Literally digging up the past, right? Anthropologically yes, yeah. and, and whatever, archaeologically. Why are we digging up the past? And why is it so important for us to even look at the past, Matthew? I mean, why, why, would you, why do you focus so much on it? Right. Well, first, uh, from a secular standpoint, to study history is to understand where we've been, how we got where we are today. If we're planning to chart out where we're hoping to go in the future, we need to understand the building blocks uh, in, in philosophy, in culture, in just the sheer events, right. the, the characters, uh, the personalities in history that, that brought us to this point uh, in our particular lifetime. We can build on that. We learn wisdom from that. And, and when we've seen in history uh, the greatest tragedies that have taken place, I think of Nazism, I think of uh, the establishment of the Soviet Union, we, we see that now in secular culture. It is the obliteration of history, first and foremost, that allows them to re-educate, uh, to form people in the direction that they want with no sense of what happened before. Well, this so, is why I guess some um, uh, particularly radical groups will take over some town and they'll destroy the museum. They'll break up all of the old stuff. They'll take the faces books. off the... Yeah. yeah, burn books or take the faces off of the statues so Precisely. that you don't know all that. Yeah, I mean, with, with a group like ISIS, we see the eradication of the, the culture that was there previously. But if we look in the Old Testament, we see that with the Assyrians who did the same thing. You're, right. you're wiping away the past... Uh, so that no one has an anchor. There's no root uh, to who they are, uh, and their their culture, their origins. So you're, you're basically wiping them out. But we've seen that historically. You, you just mentioned book burning. We, we saw that with Nazi Germany. Uh, we saw that in the Cultural Revolution in, in China. And to some degree, we see that on some of our university campuses today. So if I come home and my kids have scratched my face <laughs> off of the pictures on the wall, I should be worried, shouldn't I? There's getting ready to be something bad happening. <laughs> yes, you should. I think for a variety of different reasons than just your, your face being defaced. <laughs> so, all right. So uh, history is important. And, you know, yes. we also know that, that, that phrase that essentially something like, uh, if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. Right? The great writer and philosopher, George Santayana. Right. Uh, that, that he who forgets history is doomed to relive it. Yeah. Uh, and in a way, we're, we're seeing that today. But from a Catholic standpoint, too, understanding history, but also understanding church history, we are witnessing in, in the history of the church from, we can talk about from the time of our Lord, we can talk from the time of Pentecost, is the journey of 
our faith in time. Mm. And we're able to follow the progress of the faith around the world, its challenges, uh, the, the opportunities, the tragedies, but also the beauty and glory of Catholic history and how we have built Western civilization, how we have moved out into the world, and how we have built, in a way, the global civilization that we have today. Now you're making me feel guilty for not paying attention to my history (laughs) classes, because this is important stuff. It is. Because it it, it definitely informs where you are today and what you're doing today, and especially where you're going tomorrow. Right. We are, especially as as a faith, we must be aware of our past, um, because of... We are a people of the book. We are people of the word, of course. Mm-hmm. But we're also a people of tradition. And to see the faith lived in the world, uh, to see the, the life of, of virtues that are being lived by the saints, the example, the role models that we have in the saints and the popes in, in the great leaders of, of the church, the intellectual uh, leaders of the church. We can go throughout the history of the church from Augustine. We can start with Paul, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, John Paul II. These are role models for right. how we should be formed in the faith. And then we have a countless number of that, that great cloud of witnesses of the saints, of the martyrs, who continue to inform us how we should live our lives today uh, with, with courage, with devotion, but above all with love. You know, Matthew, one thing I think is really interesting, I've been to Deacon Jeff's RCIA classes, and you've got a lot of Protestants that have become Catholic. Yeah. And usually what's brought them to the church is their study of history, the patristics, the church fathers, looking beyond the Bible, and it seems to be that that's causing a great number of conversions that, uh, that we've seen. Well, we saw, for example, the Oxford Movement uh, in, in the 19th century that brought John Henry Newman into the church. Mm-hmm. What was the catalyst for that? Well, he wanted to do an academic study on the origins to try to prove Anglo-Catholicism, the Church of England, that, that there was something there that could be proven solidly. And the result was that he became Catholic. Uh, to study the, the early history of the church, but especially to study the church fathers, patristics, as you were just mentioning, is to begin to grapple with the fact that church teaching has always been the same, that the church is true, it is, it is universal. It is the four marks, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And to study the origins of that and how the, the church fathers defended the faith in the in the fourth century against the Arians and the fifth century against all the different other heresies, Monophysitism, for example, we begin to understand how the church is true, but also how to defend the church. And, and if you take the risk of studying the church fathers, that you're at great peril if you're a Protestant. You know, uh, and it, I think uh, it's Newman. I'll, I'll butcher another quote for you. I like yeah. to do this. Uh, you'll correct me. But uh, he said something to the effect that to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant, right? Yes, Essentially, that- he... He, he, he had nowhere else to go once he saw the truth and saw it. Right. You, it, you can't push over a 2,000-year-old woman, right? <laughs> I mean, when the, the, the church, our mother, uh, is, is, um, is formidable. Yes. That uh, history. But you're also grappling with uh, the truth of right. the Catholic faith. And that the promise uh, made to Peter is, is true today. Yeah. But, but there's one other aspect, too, that in, in the study of church history, we begin to see how the teachings of the church, how the church is truly universal. She is relevant and meaningful for every age and every culture. And that's something that uh, we have seen, especially in this last century, uh, with the explosion of the church across Africa. We see it in Asia. Uh, we see the church on the move. And, and Pope Benedict XVI very memorably said in 2005 when he was installed as pope 
that he said, look around the world. And in a way, you could look at St. Peter's Basilica, you could look at St. Peter's Square. The church is alive, he said, but the church is young. The church is growing fastest in the world where the world is youngest. Mm. And that is why we have to have confidence and and optimism for the future, despite what we're seeing in in some ways with Western culture, with Western Europe, and and to some degree with North America. But so many people see when they hear the word history, they start thinking about some old professor with the gray hair sticking out all over the place who can barely lift up the big heavy book that he drops on the table and all this dust comes flying off of it. I'm increasingly resembling that. Well, no, certainly not, no. Uh, But but I guess the point is we have to understand uh, to a certain degree that we – that when we do that, we sort of hem ourselves into some kind of boring lesson that means nothing, right, that's irrelevant to our lives, and yet it's something that's actually something that's very vibrant and, and really alive. And yeah, history is alive, right? Oh, yeah, very much. And, and it, it, one other image that I think we need to focus on when we study church history is the family of faith. That we're not just looking at a history of institutions, of, of dry bureaucracies, of, of wars and events in the past. We're actually studying our family history. Yeah. All of us sure. are, are in this together. And we're looking at our ancestors. We're looking at our relatives uh, because we belong to the great household of God. Right. Yeah, because you can oversimplify history sometimes if you don't look at that all those different aspects in the family and understand, well, uh, that was Uncle So-and-so. Remember, he was like this, and that was uh, whatever, and this was this person, and this they came over, and there was this time, and whatever, and they lived in this kind of neighborhood or whatever, and all those factors come into play. I know when people talk about things, they want to simplify something like uh, the Reformation. Right. Well, you know, Martin Luther was upset with indulgences, and so there was a Reformation. It's like, well, it wasn't that simple. <laughs> I mean, d- d- politically, uh, nationalistically, uh, socially, all these different things were at play. And the study of church history, let's just target that one little aspect of the Reformation. We, we hear, we always hear, that the Reformation began this, uh, the reform of the church, that the, the, the Catholic Reformation. Right. That what's the phrase that we hear? Counter-Reformation. Right. In fact, it's, it's much more valid and historically accurate to say the Catholic reform. Why? Because there were what I always refer to as channels of reform that were in existence that were on the move long before Luther uh, posted his 95 theses on the right. doors in Wittenberg. There were reforms of spiritual life, uh, that the popes were actually making their efforts with councils to reform. There, were, there was a whole reform movement within the Vatican that was trying to get traction right at the time when Luther was doing his thing. Right. What it took, of course, was the powerful leadership of someone like Pope Paul III, one of my favorite popes, uh, who summoned the Council of Trent to bring all of these different threads of reform together. That's why I always argue that Luther, uh, whatever one thinks of him, really wasn't necessary. The reforms were going to happen in the church. Right. Uh, and, and in a way, he short-circuited a lot of the great reforms that might or have Or exacerbated or highlighted or... Exactly. And, and you hit on a key word there, too, of, of that once it became political, once the great German princes of, of the Holy Roman Empire saw in Luther an opportunity to rid themselves of the emperors in, in the Holy Roman Empire... It became a political war, and, and then Europe, of course, descended into a bloodbath. Yeah. And, and that's one of the great tragedies, but it's also why we need to know the details of history. 
Amen. So that's good. We've got more to talk about with history with Matthew Bunsen. Uh, very interesting conversation. We'll continue it on the other side of this break. Before we do that, I want to remind folks at home we had a great website, www.thecatholiccafe.com. Also, I'd love to, I'd love to have you, hear from you. Send me an email, deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And uh, join us on the other side of this break to find out all of the answers you ever want to know about church history coming up right after this. And this is another great moment in church history. How many of us recall in years past a visit to a grandmother or older Catholic friend and being immersed in signs and symbols of the Catholic faith? Crucifixes adorning the walls of every room, a Blessed Mother statue in the garden, rosaries lying on the nightstands, Holy cards and other pictures of saints were everywhere to the point where one could not help but see the faith of the person dwelling in the house. These objects and prayer cards are part of the wonderful tradition of the Church known as sacramentals. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, a sacramental is a sacred sign by which spiritual effects are signified and obtained through the prayers of the Church. Just as working people keep pictures of their loved ones at their offices to remind them of their family when not at home, and just as married couples wear wedding rings to signify the commitment of life and love made to their spouses, so the Church encourages us to have sacred objects about us as reminders of our faith. If we truly love Jesus and desire with our hearts to be saints in heaven with Him, it is only natural that we should want reminders of our beloved Lord all about us. And what is truly wonderful is these holy objects can help us with our prayer and keep us on the road to sanctity. The Church has an ancient tradition of the faithful bringing sacramentals to the priest or deacon to have them blessed. A blessing of an object is a prayer over that object, setting it apart for use for prayer, and asking the Lord to allow the object to be used as an instrument of grace. Once blessed, the objects are different in a sense, consecrated or set apart for God, and thereafter deserve a special reverence. We need to ask ourselves, if a stranger came into our home, would he find evidence of our faith? Consider placing a crucifix in every room of your house to be visibly reminded of the supreme love of God in offering His Son, or place a Bible in a prominent space to emphasize the importance of the Word of God. Perhaps, have a holy water font in your house so family members can bless themselves before prayer. And be sure to make gifts of religious objects to graduates or young Catholic couples getting married, as these instruments of faith will likely be more important to these young people than anything listed in the bridal registry. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this has been another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And we're back in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff sitting here with Robert Hutton, and we're talking to Matthew Bunsen. Matthew is the faculty chair for CDU, the Catholic Distance University, and you've 
uh, obviously done a lot of stuff with uh, our Sunday Visitor. I and uh, you do the Catholic Answers column there for... Uh, I do the... Uh, I'm editor of the Catholic Answer magazine. Uh, okay, the we, Catholic Answer... What we Answer. affectionately call uh, TCA. Okay, TCA. All right, now I know. TCA. TCA, yeah. Uh, and then I'm also a general editor each year of the, uh, the Catholic Almanac, which has been in existence since 1904. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Uh, you know, interestingly, when you're talking about history... At some point in time, to understand history, to study history, you've got to document history, right? Yes. Is that kind of what's going on with this, uh, the, the, well, the 2016 Catholic uh, Almanac that you're getting ready to uh, put out or have right. done? Yep. Uh, and then I'm sure there'll be a 2017, a 2018. God willing, and yes. And when people yeah. are tuning this in in 2032, <laughs> there'll be a 2032 Catholic Almanac. And I don't know if you'll still be involved in it. I hope so. Well, my, it, it's interesting <laughs> you say that because my, my predecessor, uh, a magnificent Franciscan by the name of Father Felician Foy, was general editor of this of, of the Catholic Almanac for 42 years. Wow. I've been editor since 1997, right? and I don't know if it uh, is an indication of my growing insanity, <laughs> but I begin dimly to see how he managed to pull this off for 42 years. Well, that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. So tell me, wh- why is a Catholic almanac so important, and how does it relate to history and, and our study of history? Well, we've been talking about this idea of continuity, of understanding where we've been. Uh, each year, the Catholic almanac presents a, a snapshot of where the church is right now. So that means we have statistics of the church in every country in the world, uh, literally every country in the world. For example, uh, one of my most fun things to do is to sort of document catechists in different parts of the world. Like, right. like we know that there, I think there are 432 cate- uh, catechists on the island of Vanuatu in the that's, Pacific. That's good to know, Robert. <laughs> uh, where is Vanuatu? I don't, <laughs> I don't know it's that. In the, it's in the Pacific. Oh, okay. But I mention that because we're seeing the life of the church around the world uh, in, in all of these different countries. And we, we have to document with uh, assistance from the Holy See, from, from various uh, sources, including the Secretary of State and various statistical offices of the Holy See, how many Catholics there are in each country and what they faced just in this last year. And then we look at uh, all of the, the writings of the Pope, his travels, so that in this one volume, you can pick up 2004, you can look at 2008, you can go all the way back to the 40s. Like I said, the Almanac's been around since 1904. Right. And you can see what the popes have done, what happened exactly in that year, and to see how the, cha- the changes have come in the church uh, as she has grown around the world and her leadership has changed, and yet we have that beautiful continuity of our teachings, and, and you can track exactly where the church has been and, and where she's headed. But, but the other aspect, too, that, that I've always loved about the Catholic Almanac is, and this is especially true in the past, if you were to pick up a Catholic Almanac in the 1940s, for example... It, it was much larger than it is today. Why? Because it included things like baseball stats. Oh, wow. What were the best novels of the year? What won Best Picture the Oscars? Why? Because each almanac was this perfect little universe of Catholic culture. Right. Because a Catholic wouldn't buy another almanac because... He had the had, Catholic had almanac. the Catholic almanac. And so we, it needed we, to include all that other stuff that he might need. It did, yeah. And... and in a way, if we can get back to that, I think we might, as a, as a community, be better off. Are you going to add baseball stats to your almanac? Uh, I'd love to if we could add at least football stats, yeah. But it was all there. Uh, and that was sort of the, the life of the church at that moment in time. Right. So do you often take, uh, do you compare, uh, you know, where we are in 2016 to where we were in you know, 2015, but maybe even back in 2000 or oh, when you started in 97. Yeah, when I work with uh, different news outlets uh, doing consulting or, or other things, 
one of the often asked questions is, what are our stats like now compared to then? Right. Uh, the church around the world. The church in Africa, for example, in, in when the, the Catholic Almanac started around 1904, there were about 2 million Catholics in all of Africa. Most of them were Europeans. Today, there are well over 200 million Catholics, mm. almost all of them Africans. That gives us an idea of what this century has been like. And if you can chart just that one region, you begin to see the success of the faith and, and how it has changed Africa. And, and media outlets love those sorts of comparative statistics. Yeah, and that helps you see what's going on somewhere. And again, it, it informs your discussion about history. It does. Uh, and what's going on today. You say, well, like, why are there so many, why do I keep seeing all these whatever in Africa? Why do we have so many African priests visiting us in the United States? What's going on over there in Africa? Right. And so having the documentation, the statistics, helps you to see that, that particular growth. But then also maybe it'll show you, Places where the church is hurting, yes, as well, yeah. and that and that's one of the things too that you can document. Uh, if you look at the number of priests, for example, in North America and in Western Europe, uh, in the 1960s, we had these huge classes of, of ordinations of, of seminarians, and those have gone down over the over the decades. And yet, in the, in the last five or six years, we're seeing upticks. So, if you can chart. Uh, using statistics, for example, from the Almanac, you can make very easy graphs of where we've been, where we are, and where we're likely headed. And it, it goes back to that, that point I was making about optimism. Right. But also having a sober, realistic understanding of where we are, because you can't really plan effectively uh, as a church uh, for where we need to put our resources, wh- what our priorities are. I, I think, for example, of the, the clergy sex abuse scandal. Uh, we had to cover that in the Almanac right. uh, throughout the, the 2000s uh, with updates from a, a, a brilliant writer of the name of Russell Shaw. You can chart in each issue of the Catholic Almanac how the church has responded to the sex abuse crisis from the, the first really bad days around 2002 when we had the, the whole the, the film Spotlight, of course, was sure. focusing on, the, on the, the catastrophe in Boston, how the church has responded nationally but then how Pope Benedict and Pope Francis have also responded to the crisis, and now how the Church is, is looking at this as a global problem and crafting solutions that really are effective to the point now, if, if you follow this, the Church in the United States stands as the one institution in the United States that is most effective in dealing with the sex abuse issue, but also in creating a safe environment for children, in screening. It's looked to by... So many other groups, institutions, corporations, as, model. And, as a model, and that's all there. But it's something that we need to be talking about. Of course, as, as, you, as you're saying that, I was thinking, you know, I haven't heard this. And the reason I haven't heard it is because all I hear is the negative, right. which is we're doing a terrible job. What a horrible institution the church has become. We're harboring all these uh, bad folks who are doing bad things to these good people. And I know bad things happen, but the reality is if you don't, know the facts, if you don't know the statistics, if you don't see the history, especially our, our most recent history to understand what's going on, you're ill-informed. And yeah. so you end up going down the wrong path. And, and people ask, well, what's the value of uh, having a book like this every year? It's all online. Well, there's a lot of information online. Much of it is unreliable. Oh, yeah. But you still need a go-to source. Uh, one other small example from the, from the Catholic Almanac is uh, we have a section on ecumenism and interreligious dialogue that we work very closely with the, the folks at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops and, and that whole secretariat of right. ecumenism and religious dialogue. 
the Catholic Almanac each year is sort of the, the place that uh, people who chart, who, who study where we are with ecumenical dialogue, with the Orthodox, for example, with the Protestants, uh, and, of course, uh, with our interreligious dialogue, which is becoming increasingly important in this globalized sure. you know, world that we're living in, this civilization. It's all there, and you can see the progress. Uh, but you can also see, uh, to use that word again, the, sort of the, the, the sober realistic appraisal that we have to make of, of some of these great differences. And that, that's especially true not just in our dealings with Islam, but also with uh, Hinduism right. uh, in, in India, where we have hundreds of millions of Catholics who are still just a tiny fraction of the wider population in India and who need our support and our prayers. Amen. And so it's good to know these things. And so, again, looking from looking at history not just as something in the past but something that we're actually living and then actually that past informs our future it's it, it's going to help us to deal with these crises as they continue i mean ever since the the garden of eden there's been a problem right we've yes. always had this yes. problem an ongoing uh, concupiscence and, and draw to sin and so we're going to fall into this trap time and time again so the more we know about our history Right, the more we can inform ourselves and help ourselves when, when it comes time for those solutions. And, and have trust in the, the life and, and the, the Holy Spirit in the church. Matthew, are there more martyrs today than there were? I've been told that this is a time of great martyrdom in the church. Is That's, that true? Yes. Are you seeing uh, that? We're trying to, uh, as uh, different agencies are trying to document exactly how many Christians have died. It, it is, I think, a statistically proven number, uh, historically proven that more Christian martyrs died in the 20th century than in all of the centuries previous. Uh, if we factor in those who died in China, uh, in the Holocaust, and by which I mean the, the Second World War, uh, if we look at the, the victims of the Soviet Union, uh, and now the persecutions around the world, this is a new age of martyrs. And we need to be informed of that. Uh, it, it, as we look at what our Christian brothers and sisters are facing just in the, in the Near East and Middle East, uh, we, I think, begin to appreciate the dimensions of this problem. And when you extend that into Africa, where every day we hear about the attacks by Boko Haram, by al-Shabaab, our Christian brothers and sisters uh, live every day in threat, under threat of death and persecution. There are probably 400 million Christians at any given moment uh, whose lives are made more difficult because they are Christian. Think of the, the 21 Coptic martyrs uh, who died at the hands of ISIS on a beach in Libya. Mm. They have not been forgotten, but they also stand as testimony to the faith that's being lived right now under such horrible and difficult circumstances. All the more reason we need to, we need to look at our history, study our history, and realize that the things that are going on today aren't necessarily new, are yes, they? Yes, right. And we have had um, terrible moments in, in the past. We, we've had, as they like to say, bad popes. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet, none of those popes, for all of their human frailty, and we can certainly look at the immense frailty of some of these popes and, and their, their humanity, none of them committed heresy. Mm, that's a, and that's amazing. Uh, what a testimony to the church, to the truth, to history. Matthew Bunsen, thank you so much for spending time with us here at the Catholic Cafe. We really appreciate Joy it. Joy to be with you. So we're going to ask for Our Lady's mantle of protection. Let's pray to Mary for her intercession as we close our program. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary. Full, full of grace, grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. 
Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.